I think it's really exciting because ultimately, you know, compute is underlying a lot of science these days, right? And so if you are able to like build those tools, you're contributing a little bit to so many like different fields. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. My name is Connor, and today with us we have three panelists and a special guest. We're going to go around and do brief introductions first of the panelists. We'll start with Stephen, then go to Bob, and then go to Marshall. Hello, I'm Stephen Taylor, an APL and Q programmer. I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast, and I am not the host this week. I'm Marshall Lockbaum, former J programmer and dialog developer, and now I'm a BQN programmer and developer. And as mentioned before, my name is Connor. I am a, I guess, C++ professional developer, but I consider myself a polyglot, and I'm a huge fan of the array languages. And I thought you did a fantastic uh, job, Bob, standing in. And, you know, I think that means I can retire at any point, and I'll know that the show will be in, in good hands with a, uh, a host waiting in the wings to swoop in and take my spot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not the swooping kind of guy. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, since you were on the beach, we, 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 we just soldiered on and... I think it was okay. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was a great episode, and I have to say, there is something nice about being able to listen to my own podcast without having to have been there. You know, it's a, it's a different a different uh, listening experience. So I think we have uh, two announcements, both from Bob. So we'll do those, and then we will get into introducing our guest and chatting with him. Okay, first announcement is uh, Eric Iverson has been working. If you ever wanted to put an instance of J up on AWS, up on the cloud, and run from there, uh, there are instructions on how to do that. He's put together a post that all the steps you need to do, and then you can run J with whatever size machine you wish to pay for through AWS. And I imagine there's other cloud services you can do to with as well, but uh, he's done it for AWS, and uh, that's kind of neat that you can um, expand your computer far beyond what your interface might be. And the second one, to the surprise of many who attended KXCon, <laughs> KXCon has put up their videos, and I say surprise because... On Reddit, I actually found a link to the KX videos. And this morning when I was talking to Connor, said, oh, the old videos are up. He went, I, I haven't seen them. There's another video set, but it's probably just old. I said, no, it's the video set. He looked at it, and sure enough, it is. For some reason, they've put them in a specific link within their site and not uh, on YouTube, um, which is their choice. But uh, we will include the link in our show notes, as always. If you wish to see the uh, video from KXCon, on a previous episode, we, of course, did a review of KXCon, and now you can look at the videos and see how accurate the review was. Yeah, this is this is exciting because I definitely have a handful of folks that have asked to um, to know when the links have gone live, and I I thought they weren't, but I guess they are, and so uh, you can all go watch them now if you're listening to this podcast and have been waiting for those videos. They are online; they're just not on YouTube. I think if you put them on YouTube, more people will discover them because then the YouTube algorithm will start you know dishing them to. I don't, I don't know, the, the, the small number of folks that Google KX and Q and APL enough to, uh, to let YouTube know that uh, they're interested. But um, um, as long as they're online, that's 90% that's, uh, that's of the work right there. So, All right, with that out of the way, we are going to, and I didn't ask how to pronounce his last name, so we're going to give it a shot, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is Adam Paschke. I probably got that wrong, but uh, we'll hear in a sec. He is most famously, I think, the creator 
of one of the most popular data science libraries and just Python libraries in general, PyTorch. And that has gone on to be, you know, absorbed or consumed by Facebook. And so now Facebook does a lot of the maintaining and developing of that uh, library. So we're going to talk to him a lot about that. But also, more interestingly, he has been working on the DEX programming language, which I'm sure a few of our listeners, I definitely know one of them has heard of it. Uh, the white paper went online, I think a couple years ago, and the research on that is taking place mostly at Google Brain, or if not entirely at Google Brain. And uh, that's where he currently works. He spent time, I think, doing multiple internships, uh, mostly at Facebook, one at Google. And I think actually you also did an internship at NVIDIA, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll throw it over to Adam. He can correct the pronunciation of his last name if I if I totally messed that up. And I guess go back as far as you want and, and tell us sort of your history and how you got into building a library that was quasi-inspired by array languages, but is, has gone on to sort of massive popularity. Uh, yeah, so thanks, uh, Connor, for the introduction. I think the I think the pronunciation was pretty good, so there's no need to nitpick that. If we're going to go back in time, kind of, uh, you know, back to where it all started, I think that really sort of the most important place was kind of in the first year of my undergrad. Um, and actually, array languages were kind of completely not in my mind. Um, so what happened was I was actually sitting with some of my friends and in a lecture and the lecture was pretty boring. It, it wasn't a computer science lecture or anything. Um, it was more like organizational, um, stuff. And we ended up talking and, um, one of them pointed me to Coursera and I thought that it was cool because actually, you know, we were still kind of early, but Coursera had all of those courses where you could, you know, just kind of try out different things that would normally like at a university kind of my university was very theoretical and they kind of put a lot of emphasis on like first, you know, teaching you kind of the basics. So, you know, just a lot of linear algebra, a lot of like calculus kind of, we hardly had any computer science courses really in the first year, but I was really excited to kind of try it out. Um, so that was kind of an exciting thing for me. Um, and this is where I found Andrew and G's course on machine learning and, um, you know, computer science was always kind of cool to me. Um, I've had, you know, I dabbled in various attempts at programming and whatnot throughout the years. Um, I don't think I was very good at it, um, you know, before that, but, uh, you know, I always found it, um, kind of interesting. Um, but I distinctly remember this one time when I was reading some like computer science, I don't know, like PC magazines, right? Like nothing sort of scientific or anything. And I remember reading this article about like that, that was like almost when I was a kid or a teenager and, and about some people who were like, I don't know, making self-driving cars or whatever. And I thought that was really cool, but this was like way beyond my comprehension at that point. Right. But I found this course and this is, I think how it got started. So initially I actually did want to be kind of a machine learning researcher, but, uh, as it turned out, um, that was also not something that I was great at, but it did point me, um, I mean, especially at that time, right? Like that was still kind of early in my undergrad and the field was not quite as hot as it is today. That was like 2014, I think. So like the big breakthrough on like ImageNet was, I don't know, maybe two years before. Uh, so it was nowhere near like the, the hype it's and attention it's getting today and like, you know, nowhere, nowhere as competitive. But still, I mean, it's kind of useful to have more background to be able to, you know, actually do like scientific research, especially in sort of a, you know, somewhat mathematically involved field at times. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and I did find a, you know, library that was Torch 7 in Lua. 
And I wanted to learn machine learning. I played a bunch with it, but then I just ended up finding myself sending more and more, more pull requests to it. And uh, I guess that's how the journey started. Um, so the initial basis of PyTorch was in Lua? Oh, I mean, Lua is, that was Torch 7, right? Like Torch itself as is like a sequence of libraries that is, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know where, like what time um, the first versions were published. You can still find like all the web pages uh, with like goofy pictures of the authors or, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I can try to dig that up. Um, but yeah, uh, I started working on the seventh version and the seventh version, I think, was the first one where they started using Lua as the sort of driver, the scripting language that would be driving sort of the array compute, right? Right. Like Torch, I think it was, I think it might have been in Lisp, but it might as it might have been in like C or C. I don't remember the details, but they changed the language throughout the years mm-hmm. um, that they embedded the sort of array library in. Interesting. And so I assume when you started contributing, that was when the Python front end started being built out or What's the story behind sort of the the Pi and PyTorch uh, as it exists today? Because clearly that, or at least if I'm not mistaken, that is the most popular way that it's consumed today. Yeah. Um, no, no. So back then, um, the Python front end was not something that was kind of contemplated in that um, community. There were definitely Python-based solutions that were fairly popular at that time. Tiano was definitely, you know, one very mm-hmm. big and very popular um, library at the time. Um, but Torch had a lot of uh, Torch had a lot of uh, sort of weights behind it. It was kind of the you know library used at Facebook AI research at that time, um, and so you know it had some engineering support through this, and uh, you know it also had kind of an open source community. From actually DeepMind back then was also using Torch Seven. Um, if you look at if you watch the AlphaGo documentary. You can actually, if you, if sometimes there are like uh, pictures of computers, and if you look at the code, it's actually Lua code, and uh, you know there are snippets of Torch Seven in there. Interesting. So, yeah, and DeepMind was actually kind of also a big force behind it. But once DeepMind got acquired by Google, um, you know, after some time, they ended up switching from Torch Seven to TensorFlow, which has been published a little after I started working on it. And that was kind of a big blow to the community, I think. And also Torch 7 had kind of a bit of a bad rep um, online because of the because you know it used Lua and people were just less familiar with Lua. And I do agree that like Lua is really nice. Lua JIT, by the way, is an amazing interpreter. Like Lua can run like has a really, really good just-in-time compiler and can run way faster than Python can. But as a scripting language, Python is a little more convenient. So I ultimately the Python based tools were growing a lot faster than the Torch 7 community was, I think. And that was kind of siphoning the attention away from it. Um, and so at that point, one of the things we were doing is we were actually separating the C bits away from the Lua bits. So we kind of built a pure C library for doing the array math and then separated the bindings because at some point they kind of got entangled. And once we had that, I kind of had the idea that, well, now that we have a pure C library, I started kind of reading about the C Python API, like kind of binding, you know, writing initial bindings. And at the same time, there's actually a funny story where I was supposed to, uh, well, I was supposed to, I applied to Google for an internship um, and it was pretty late. I think I did end up passing the interviews. And after that, once you pass the interviews, it's not guaranteed that you do an internship. 
you actually um, sort of had like somebody from Google has to pick you as their intern. And actually nobody picked me, <laughs> um, but uh, I knew, I knew Sumith uh, who, you know, worked at Facebook and I was like, Hey, you know, I passed the interviews. Maybe, you know, somebody at Google who would, he knew me from open, my open source contributions. So he knew, you know, I could do useful stuff. So I was like, Hey, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, somebody who could use my help uh, and, you know, perhaps I could learn something from them at Google. And he was like, well, you know, you can just come work with us. And so I came uh, and we looked together through like the Python prototypes I had and, uh, ended up working on it together also with, uh, Sam and Greg and a few other people, um, in New York. Interesting. I, I had no idea about the, um, the Lua interface that that was, I guess the primary interface you're saying for scripting, um, and, and consuming it. And then I, it looks like, yeah, I looked it up. The back end was written in C and C plus plus, yeah. whether that was the case at the time or C plus plus was added later. But so there was this sort of competing, well, not competing historically, but at one point there was Lua and then you started working on sort of a Python interface and, yep. and, uh, and, and what was the motivation behind Google sort of shelving that and then switching to TensorFlow? Because I don't live in the machine learning or data science world specifically, um, but I have heard that there is this sort of not competing interests, but I think PyTorch is more used by, more by industry, if I'm not mistaken, and TensorFlow is more used more by academia. There's some kind of competing, like which one's more popular. If you if you Google, should I use PyTorch or should I use TensorFlow, you'll get like a bunch of Reddit posts and Stack Overflows of people right. people debating which is better for which. Um, if you if you have anything to say or comments, obviously you know you're you're quite familiar probably with the communities. Uh, I'd be super interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, so actually, Google itself like Brain, for example, I don't think they ever used Torch as their primary software. Google like had, you know, its own early versions like Disbelief and um, I think some other systems, which in the end ended up transforming into TensorFlow. As far as I know, I'm also not like super up to date on the detail uh, on, you know, the history of TensorFlow. It was actually DeepMind, which, you know, started off as a startup uh, that used Torch 7 and got acquired by, by Google. And so that was... That's what you're saying was the blow is that that com that or I guess company was using PyTorch, which was great for the PyTorch or great for the. Well, it wasn't using PyTorch because PyTorch didn't exist yet. It was using the it was using the the Lua Torch, yeah. And ultimately, yeah, when PyTorch got started, I mean, the whole idea was that you know we get to redo everything, um, we get to bring it closer to kind of where people what people want. I think um, when they you know want to do their machine learning researcher systems. Since pretty much every other solution that was popular these days wasn't Python, we were like, fine, we just have to do the jump. Um, but at that point, it was like, since we would be breaking kind of all of or most of backwards compatibility, we figured that actually we could also redesign a few bits and pieces of the library um, that were kind of, you know, at that point, we kind of knew better. Um, it's also kind of funny because I think most of the machine learning libraries they kind of ended up sort of rediscovering a lot of things that were kind of obvious in like, if you ended up reading like programming lang languages papers or, you know, kind of, there's a lot of research in like how to build languages and systems like that. Um, but sort of in the machine learning community, since it was like the development of those tools in many cases, I think was actually driven by people who kind of didn't have the background in like programming languages and so on. It was actually kind of, you know, we were doing a lot of programming language work that has been discovered previously. Like, for example, automatic differentiation. That's like a technique that's been way older than anything we've done. 
but we have kind of been like rediscovering instead of, you know, because we didn't know like the field existed back at that time, we ended up like rediscovering a bunch of kind of similar things just for the purpose of, you know, making a, making a good library. Once we actually started talking to those communities, this is, I think, where the, you know, development really took off. Um, but at least initially it was like not obvious to us. So Adam, when you rediscover something like that, that already exists, you're not aware of it. So you're going, are there things that you learned that when you were talking to the community later on that they didn't know about? Was there actually new things revealed because there were fresh eyes on it? I think we had, you know, a bit of, I think there were definitely some new parts and, you know, we have sort of design. I mean, the core idea and like the core algorithms, I think have all been known. But, you know, in many cases, when you build systems like that, the devil is kind of in the details. And so it's not like everything that we have done and like every single problem we have had would have been found in like the, you know, papers from the 70s. Um, there were actually a bunch of like kind of engineering challenges about how to like run those algorithms online, for example, right? A lot of the literature are kind of, AD in literature often was like doing transformations on programs kind of ahead of time at compile time, as in you read one program and you spit out another source file that can be compiled. Uh, I think in Lisp, there might have been like more uh, runtime systems, but ultimately the way we have, you know, we had to build like a really low overhead runtime that would kind of online be, you know, recording how, what kind of computation has been performed and then could transform it to derive the derivative and so on. So there was just a bunch of um, kind of, you know, thinking about efficient data structures, like memory management, um, then, you know, GPUs entered the picture and that's something that hasn't really been thought of before. And then memory management is even, even more important than it ever was. And, uh, you know, you want to differentiate at a different level, like you actually don't want to differentiate, for example, the implementation of, you know, the scalar code, you actually want to differentiate whole operations oftentimes. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of things like that. So the context has kind of changed the environment, the things that were available, like GPUs, uh, when these early papers were written, weren't available, and now there were reasons to expand in, in directions that wouldn't have been available to them. Yeah. I mean, I think that, honestly, a lot of the problems in AD, a lot of the big problems in AD has been, have been solved, but I think there is still quite a bit of a niche at the intersection of AD and parallel execution, and kind of, you know, especially when executed on, like, dense, you know, vector machines like GPUs or TPUs. Um, I think there's a lot of challenges there. We actually don't I, I think we still don't have like a great way to like differentiate a lot of like low level code that people are writing for for those systems. Um, we have we have been doing this successfully, but we have been doing it kind of at the level of array programming languages, I would say, which is nice because if you're programming with arrays, sort of array programming languages map very well to GPUs and TPUs, right? Like you kind of have those big computational blocks that have a lot of sort of embarrassing, you know, parallelism inside and, um, and map really well to the hardware. Um, and if you want to differentiate that program, then you can pretty much take kind of the, you know, stock algorithm from the 70s for differentiating sequential programs, which the, you know, back then was mainly talking about scalar operations, but you can kind of, apply, you can say that, you know, oh, a reverse mode derivative of a matrix multiply is like two other matrix multiplies, right? Um, and if you just apply this algorithm, then essentially you take an array program and you transform it into an array program. And so the program you output 
even though sort of all the steps you have differentiated end up being sequentialized in the way the array program is executed, the operators inside the program still have like enough parallelism to be able to like saturate and take, you know, really good, make really good use of the hardware we have available today. Uh, but if you wanted to have a lower level programming language, one which, you know, exposes more control, like you can kind of open up and like do, you know, more branchy things. I don't know. You have a ray tracer, right? Like this is something that's not as easy to write. Uh, you know, this is not just a bunch of matrix multiplies here. Um, then like generating a parallel program that computes the derivative of, you know, something like that um, and still makes really good use of the hardware, I think is a lot more difficult. Speaking of array languages that you, you kind of just mentioned, at what point in your sort of journey of, you know, you started with Torch 7 and then, you know, ended up at Facebook where you were working on this, you know, Python bindings to, to the C library that you had isolated. At what point, because you said it, it wasn't on your mind when you had sort of entered this field. It was, you know, you were just aiming to go towards the how to become a self-driving, you know, car engineer, machine learning space. <laughs> at what point did... At that point, it's not like self-driving cars were my ambition. I just remember, you know, thinking it was cool some time before. I just, at that point, I thought machine learning was cool. And, you know, they were doing a bunch of, it was different than a bunch of like other programming, right? It's not like, you know, it could do things we couldn't do with like standard uh, programming languages. That's definitely true. All right. So in inspiring you to go in that direction, at what point did sort of array languages as a, as a, I guess, sort of topic, like first hop onto your radar. Do you even remember that? Like it was, maybe it was something that just sort of at some point in time, it sort of, you realize that these libraries, PyTorch, et cetera, and now definitely Dex, like is, is adjacent to this world. I think it was about like three or four years ago. So that was like two or three years into the PyTorch project. I mean, the PyTorch, you know, building out PyTorch and, you know, supporting and building the community around it, that was like a lot of work. And at that point, it was a lot of kind of a mix of engineering challenges and um, kind of, you know, partly research, uh, you know, around those programming languages and APIs for computing. Um, but after that time, I mean, so I actually have stopped, you know, I have barely worked on PyTorch. I have barely done anything in like the last three years or so. And this is, I think, roughly the moment where I kind of just decided that actually, you know, going deeper into the research part of what we have been building, like actually, you know, learning the principles of those programming languages and, 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 you know, automatic differentiation and parallelism and so on. Um, this was a bit of a motivation for me to actually sort of, you know, stop. I, I think that isolating, you know, myself a little from the project was helpful because as I was working on it, it was a lot of, you know, there was just a constant like stream of things that we want to build. And, you know, that's really important, right? That was also really rewarding. People were excited and using it. But I think, you know, once you actually stop, you know, fixing the issues at hand and so on, you get to sort of step back, like see the bigger picture and actually learn about it and like think a bit, you know, harder about what you're doing and so on. And I think this is roughly also the point where, you know, I started thinking more perhaps about I don't know. When you say array language, sort of the field of programming language languages kind of jumps to my mind, which is maybe when, you know, why I associate this. Obviously, we're competing with arrays a long, um, a long time before this. Um, and I did, you know, I was aware that the libraries we're building are kind of, you know, domain-specific languages that are just embedded in Python. So I was definitely aware of that, but it was never like, a, you know, something I necessarily... I think pursued as like a sort of strictly research field or, you know, 
it, it wasn't at that time. I wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, we haven't yet connected with like the, the other, you know, experts in, in, in those fields, I think. So I guess before this is like the natural place to sort of transition to asking you about, uh, you know, the, the last, uh, three years or so working on Dexling. But before I do that, I just want to pause to make sure that Bob or Steven or Marshall don't have any questions that we should ask now about the sort of PyTorch, you know, phase of, uh, Adam's history before we move on to, 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 to talking about decks. Well, I'm intrigued by the fact that you were at PyTorch and we were talking about trying to build that community. Because I imagine a certain amount of it, there'll be a lot of energy generated by the new tools that you're creating and the uses of them and that giving people power to do things that they might not have been able to do before. But there's always work to be done creating a community and, and getting that buzz happening, for lack of a better term. Um did you have anything to do with that, or was it more just you were head down making this stuff work? Um, were you responding to people in the community? Did you see that develop? How did you feel that? Because I think in a lot of ways the array languages have yet to undergo that kind of a um, popularization, and to hear what it was like for PyTorch might be useful. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um I I had a bit to do with that. I don't. Yeah, I think Sumit ultimately was sort of the main person responsible for driving the community effort. But I did a bit of that. I mean, I did a I did a bunch of talks. I uh, you know was kind of trying to be active on Twitter, and um, you know we had a we had a Slack channel where like initial users. I think one really good thing we did was actually we sort of had a sort of alpha process where we have been inviting people to try out the library. Um, and also we were kind of lucky because I think a lot of people were looking for new tools at that point, like the tools they were using, they were not necessarily happy with them. And so it was actually kind of easy to recruit like alpha testers, I think. And so some, there was a group of people who had like access to like very early versions before it was public. And we iterated and talked a lot to them and sort of integrated their feedback back into the library. Um, and after that, you know, we have published it. I also like there was a time where pretty much everything I have done was I just spent time on, you know, forums. We had a sort of public facing forum. I was like answering, you know, most of the questions initially. Now a lot of other people from the community, there are like legendary community members these days who have, who like, you know, have pretty much answered every, um, every, uh, every post out there. Um, but, you know, initially sort of to, to give a momentum, I was also doing, um, I was also doing a bit of that. So it was really a mixed bag. It was kind of a mix of outreach and, you know, trying to support people who were trying to get onboarded. But we were, I think, I think that our job was to a large degree made easier by the fact that people were looking for new tools. And also, um, you know, kind of PyTorch has those roots in sort of the research community and the research community is nice, uh, is a nice place to start with new tools, I think. Because, you know, researchers switch projects, they start new ideas every few months or years. And at that point, they often just, you know, can start their code base from scratch. So it's not like, you know, proprietary, you know, commercial systems that have been written and then will be running for like the next hundred years and, you know, almost unmodified form, except for, you know, some patches that are being, being integrated. Those people are like used to kind of code churn. And, you know, obviously, like, if you create more code churn for them because you're, like, breaking APIs and so on, they will still, like, get unhappy. But I think that a lot of research projects, like, live on fairly short timeframes. And that's a really good place to, you know, start popularizing your tool. 
Yeah, actually, as you mentioned that, that's exactly what I was thinking, is that with a lot of the array languages, they are embedded in industry and industries that don't want to see very much change because they're actually using those tools very effectively in very powerful ways. But it actually inhibits the amount of... Um, well, it's harder for you to adapt to, well, especially if they're proprietary, it's harder for you to adapt to other uses because your customers are saying, we don't really, we want everything backwards compatible. It's got to work. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for, for research, it's, for a lot of use cases, it's actually probably okay for them to like pin a particular, you know, library version. And I think it will be overall for the community. I think it's worth more if you can like deliver cutting edge features that will enable like more interesting research. Uh, that's way more important than actually, you know, trying to maintain backwards compatibility at all costs. Of course, PyTorch has grown up to this um, and, you know, this has changed a lot. You know, now it is, you know, used in the industry as well. And at that point, it actually has to be a lot more stable than it was back then. Um, but if you're building like a purely research tool, then you can actually, you know, afford to um, have a bit more of a loose contract, I think, with your with your users. And at times, they're often easier to onboard thanks to that, right? And I guess uh, now I'm as intrigued as Connor was. I'd love to hear more about Dex. <laughs> so Dex actually, um, so Dex was, uh, there's also a funny story because now at Google, I'm in a team um, where, so Autodiff in PyTorch is actually exposed through a module called Torch Autograd. Um, and back then, as I said, we actually didn't know, I think automatic differentiation or, you know, many people would shorten it to autodiff as a field exists. We knew kind of about autograd, which, uh, and that's kind of what we, uh, what we associated with it. But it turns out that autograd actually was just a library built by, uh, Matt Johnson and Dougal McLaurin and, you know, a few, a few other people, I think Ryan Adams, um, and, uh, and they're, they're essentially people that I'm working with today. So we kind of, uh, you know, I have kind of went back full circle. I have built, you know, upon the things that they have built. And now I'm kind of working with them, trying to build um, build more things. Um, so, Dex, so, so Dex kind of is, I think before you, we get to Dex, I think the first project they have sort of uh, started building in that space after they joined Google was actually Jax. Um, and so Jax was an evolution of Autograd. Jax was meant to add things like, you know, keep things like automatic differentiation kind of being very close to the heart of the project, but then also add, you know, better support for running on accelerators, better and, you know, other, you know, transforms you can apply to your, um, to your, your program. Like automatic differentiation is kind of a transform, right? You take an in mathematical function and apply it. And this gives you back another mathematical function that does, you know, something else or an implementation of that function. Um, but there are other things like, I don't know, vectorizing, right? And by vectorizing, I just mean like applying the function over a bunch of, a bunch of inputs, right? Which you can do just by, I don't know, in like a, you know, C-like language or in Python, you can just run in a for loop, uh, the original thing, but that would be inefficient. It's way better to just like run bigger array ops, right? That will let us way more efficiently map to something like a, like a GPU or a TPU. Um, so that was, that was the project, but that was still in Python. And then I think at some point, Dougal, um, he got very interested in programming languages too. And so I think there the idea was like, well, if we could, you know, free ourselves from kind of the shackles of Python here, kind of not necessarily thinking about, you know, hey, let's build, you know, the next tool that will be, you know, better for this user group or that user group. 
it's more like, hey, if we if I was to like build a tool just for myself, um, what would I do? And so he had a prototype when I interned at Google. Um, it was still pretty early, but it already like could do a lot of things. Um, and I thought it was really cool. I thought it was a really cool idea, basically, to kind of explore like, hey, if we were to build a language from first principles, kind of having the experience of, you know, me building PyTorch, him building Autograd and, you know, working on a lot of on, on Jax as well. Um, you know, what would we do? How would we design the language? And so that was kind of the idea behind um, the effort. So I joined uh, I, I joined Google after that. Um, I think it was, uh, you know, the, the project was already like a year in at that point or maybe two years in. Um, and we have been sort of uh, having fun with it a little bit. Um, it's, you know, again, this is kind of not necessarily built as something that where we expect immediate adoption. Also, programming languages, I think, are notoriously difficult to, you know, build. Um, and it takes forever to actually, like, make something that a lot of people will find useful. Um, but, you know, I think there are a lot of research ideas that we have managed to explore. And actually, a lot of the research ideas that we are, you know, have developed for DEX have also been upstreamed to JAX. And so we kind of use it as like a research vehicle. But along the way, we integrate sort of we we integrate the advancements we do back into the systems that are, you know, used a bit more widely. Interesting. Is there, well, so actually, before I ask a follow-up on, you know, is there an example of that? Can you give like a high-level description? Because I, I, I've read the white paper, paper at one point, and I've also, I think there's a, a tutorial website that you can go to and um, if it gives like a little sort of paragraph introduction of, you know, it's functional, statically typed. And I think most interestingly, like you can describe it in your own words, but uh, I think at some point, I can't remember if it's in the white paper or if it's in the uh, the tutorial website, it says it sort of compares DEX to MATLAB in that MATLAB sort of takes your loops away. And one of the goals of DEX is to give you your loops back, which is um, definitely from like array language, you know, programmers point of view, like we're very... You know, we, we love the MATLAB model of taking your for loops away. So it's, I think, no, you can keep those. <laughs> but Dex, but Dex actually doesn't take, you know, the MATLAB programming away from you. It only gives you the loops back for when you actually want them, right? Because again, like array based programming is still possible in Dex. It's just that, you know, sometimes you want something which maps really badly to array programming, right? Like kind of branchy computations, for example. I think those are, you know, notoriously difficult to express. Um, or, you know, it gives you arrays of complicated types. You can have arrays of functions, some types, whatever you want, right? And these still should be performance. So I think Dex is less about taking things away from existing array languages. It's more about, you know, actually enabling you to also sometimes use, it's basically, it's supposed to enable like the paradigm that's the best fitting for the subcomputation you're currently writing, right? And sometimes it is actually loops and writing, you know, sort of pair example code. Um, but then the vectorization happens by, oh, I'll just, you know, put four loops around it and now it's an array program, right? Even though, I don't know, you think about, some sampling process, right? I don't know, you, you have a probabilistic program or, or something like that, right? It's way easier to write it without having to think that now you're working with arrays and they have one dimension which will correspond to like a bunch of rollouts because we'll want to like simulate a number of instances of the random process. 
it's way easier to just implement it by thinking, you know, here is, you know, the, 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 here is how the world evolves. And then you say, oh, but now I want to like sample it over a bunch of, you know, evaluate it, you know, average here. And then I also want to, I don't know, try out a bunch of different hyperparameters of this whole, I don't know, there's some optimization process around. And so this lets you kind of build up those extra dimensions to your problem without necessarily forcing you to bake them into the program at every single point, right? And rank polymorphism in array languages often lets you do that. Um, so rank polymorphism is, I think, the one thing that Dex takes away. Um, but well, to some degree, there are still like rank polymorphic operators, but they have to be somewhat uniform. Um, but it does give you like the ability to sort of build up the, let's say, the parallel axes of of, of your problem, sort of more bottom up than kind of forcing you to think about it in every single place. Interesting. I did not know that. So it's less about uh, always expressing your DEX program in terms of loops and indices. It's more, you have two options. You can do it with the array style, if you will, whatever that looks like in DEX. Or if you find that cumbersome or inconvenient, you can switch over back to sort of for loops and indices if that's a better fit for the problem that you're trying to solve at the, the point in time. Yeah, I mean, the core language is based around for loops and ultimately it decomposes to scalar compute. But mm-hmm. if you look through like the built-in library, there is map, there is reduce, there is, I don't know, fold, like all of the sort of higher order combinators you would normally find in like combinator-based languages, they are there. They are implemented generally in terms of the for loop because we have found that the, actually just having the for loop, which is, it's a bit different than the for loop you would know from C, for example, right? Because the loops are generally not executed for their side effects. The loops are generally executed. Yes, yeah, so it's more of a for each. It, the for loop is more like a map. It's just syntactic sugar for a map. Like it basically, yeah, it basically gathers the result of evaluating the body over a bunch of, you know, input arguments, right? Over some finite domain. Um, but then if you add effects to this, there are still effects that will not, you know, even though you have side effects, if you use something like an effect system, um, you can still like put enough control on it so that you are still able to, for example, parallelize those loops, even though they might have side effects. Um, and based on that, you can build things like reduce or, or you know, parallel scans. Um, and then there are some effects, you know, that will necessarily force sequentialization of, of, of your code. So essentially, um, we're not taking this away, I think. All of the combinators that you would normally find in, I don't know, Foothark, for example, um, you will also find them in DEX. And if that's the programming model that suits you, then you know, go for it. But if for some reason you would find a for loop more you know, simpler to think about, that's also available. Yeah, and so maybe the distinction to point out is, I mean, all these APL derivatives have loops in some way. Um, a lot of them have you know, regular if and for and while. Um, the difference is that if you use those, then you're giving up your arrays in the process. So then you have something that's acting in an in an interpreted language on one value at a time, which is pretty slow. So what Dex is trying to do, I guess, is um, give you the loops but keep the compiled speed with it. Yeah, exactly. Because all the array code decomposes into loops. So if we can optimize those loops well, we can optimize well both the code that's written in like point-free style. And loop and you know code that is written in kind of this pointful style, right? Where you kind of decompose arrays back into their elements and then perform transformations on those elements. So does this mean that um, you sort of have the same behavior as Futhark? Because you said there are some rank polymorphic uh, facilities, but it's not like uh, built in to everything. So when you are 
yeah. doing some sort of scalar operation across like a, a rank two array, like a matrix. Does that mean that you're calling some form of, uh, you know, map twice, I think is how, you know, Futhark ends up doing it. Is it something like that? If you're trying to stay, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, a J programmer and you're trying to avoid, you know, the indices and the loops as much as possible, do you end up doing something like that? No, you can have, if you have two arrays, you can literally just say array plus array. And that's, but that's because plus is actually an overloaded operation. And we kind of adopted, you know, essentially type classes from Haskell. And you can think of type classes as being kind of a type-driven code synthesis tool in the case of, uh, for something like plus. So plus, you know, you define the base case by saying, I can add two floats, here's an implementation. And then you have an inductive definition, which is if I have, you know, an array of uh, that uses some, you know, of some size or of some index type, um, and I know how to add its elements, then I know how to add the two arrays, right? I will just have a for loop that adds together the results. And just given those two things, if you have a 5D array, then if you say, you know, 5D array X and 5D array Y, if you say X plus Y, then the DEX compiler will use the type class resolution to essentially, you know, compose the array instance four times and then terminate the code synthesis in like the scalar case. And it will sort of synthesize the definition of, you know, rank polymorphism plus for you. So a bunch of operators actually do behave in a rank polymorphic way, but we do achieve it through type classes. I can, I always forget there's, cause Haskell has, uh, is where I know the word type classes from and they have both parametric and ad hoc polymorphism. Ad hoc polymorphism is the one that corresponds to type classes. Is that accurate? I can never remember which, which is which. So type classes are a restricted form of ad hoc polymorphism. Yeah. They still have to be like uniform. It's not, you know, the sort of, I don't know, let's say holy grail of ad hoc, of ad hoc polymorphism, I would say, would be closer to like templates in C++. Right. Um, I think where you can like really do, you know, pretty crazy, uh, pretty crazy, you know, pattern matching onto your static arguments. Type classes still have to be structured, um, but they do enable you to, yeah, essentially specify an implementation per type according to some constraints. Like, for example, the type signature of the function has to be uniform across all types, right? When you say this, you know, this will be a plus on type A, then plus will always have signature, you know, it takes two A's and returns another A, right? Or equality will always takes two A and return a Boolean, which for example, NumPy doesn't satisfy, right? Equality in Python does not actually satisfy that predicate. If you, I don't know, compare two numbers, you get back a Boolean. If you compare two arrays, you get back an array of Booleans. Right. So the return type actually is sort of the, the shape of the type of the function actually varies yeah. uh, with, you know, in a language like Python. And in C++, you could also do it this way. But if you use type classes, sort of this, there's always a single like type scheme that applies to all the instances of the function, right. which then enables like better, you know, handling of polymorphic functions. Like you, you can avoid um, a bunch of like specialization and so on, but this is kind of getting deep into the implementation concerns. Well, so can you still do um, broadcasting or what we'd call an array languages? Um, uh, well, conformability or leading access agreement uh, with plus. So if you have arrays of different ranks, can it add them together according to some rule? Yeah, that is a very good question. And the answer is no. Uh, you have to, because the plus is always takes two A's and returns something, both sides have to have the same type. And arrays of different rank have different types index. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So you have to manually say, you know, but you don't have to specify the shape of the broadcast because this could be inferred through the type inference. But you would have to say, you know, 
if I have a 3D and 5D array, then I will have to say broadcast broadcast X plus Y, and that will work. Um, like the compiler will infer like what is the extent of the broadcast that will be necessary to make this program type check. But you have to explicitly indicate that the broadcast is supposed to happen. Yeah, and which argument needs to do it. And which argument, yeah. Hmm. Which, to some degree, I think also is reasonable. I mean, broadcasting errors are pretty common, and they can sort of silently, you know... Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we play fast and loose in the APL world. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it is slightly less convenient if you're really used to it, but in the end, I think it's not the end of the world. So I guess another thing to comment that we haven't really, I mean, kind of implicitly we've referred to this, but the fact that, you know, type classes have been mentioned is that DEX is actually, if I'm not mistaken, primarily implemented in Haskell. Um, is there anything that... Yeah, it is implemented entirely. In entirely Haskell. in Haskell. Is there anything like worth commenting <laughs> other than, you know, mentioning that for our listeners that might also be sort of functional programming uh, fans? Or is, is, is there anything sort of behind that decision? Or is it uh, just a, you know... a a great language for doing research in. I think, uh, you know, I think Haskell or functional languages are just like pretty good tools for building compilers. So ultimately, this is this is like a, a big reason. Like the type system, I think, is very useful. And we have, in fact, even written like short papers about how we use the type system to, for example, you know, make sure we don't like use our substitutions incorrectly in the compiler, which is like a really, really nasty bug to um, to, you know, try to track down, um, as you have a miscompile. Um, so I think it's just been convenient. And also I, I think that, you know, as a project that only has, let's say one or two people working on it, because I also don't work on Dex full-time actually, um, Google works on Dex full-time. I, you know, spend some of my time on it. Um, so for a project this small, I think Haskell also like provides a lot of, uh, provides a lot of power, like, it's also a fairly, you know, um, fairly terse programming. In, in a fairly terse program, you can kind of do a lot. And I don't know. I think it's just a good choice for things like that. But ultimately, I think that, you know, this is kind of a bit of a social factor. Like, ultimately, the language in which the compiler for another language is implemented doesn't play a significant role for, you know, the... I don't know how the uh, the target language behaves, and uh, and I don't know the the quality of it in many cases. That means we have two languages, Futhark, uh, which I think trolls would definitely still categorize as a research language, and that's out of the University of Copenhagen. And we've got Dex, which is out of Google Research, and both are array functional array languages that are. Uh, uh, definitely Futhark is targeting accelerated compute. And I know that from, I believe, once again, I I can't uh, delineate what was from the white paper and what was from the tutorial online when I went through it. But I know that CUDA was mentioned and acceleration was a mention. So what is the story at the moment for, you know, writing your DEX code and then being able to to target different, you know, accelerated compute? Is that, uh, has that been implemented or is that sort of a on the horizon roadmap goal? That has been implemented and then the support for it has disappeared in some version of the compiler. So we have actually regressed in that regard. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so we have been essentially building the language very carefully so that, you know, it remains possible to compile down to accelerators. Like we have worked a bunch with it and we know that, you know, Pretty much all of modern scientific computing happens on accelerators. If you look at all the supercomputers, they're all like just most of the flops really come from accelerators, right? So it's a really, really 
it's a really, really, and I mean, people even like have GPs in their computers, like, you know, on collab or whatever you, you just have, you know, lots of opportunities to use accelerators and, and they're like really good at, at doing math. So we might as well use them. And so as we're designing the language, we're kind of consciously pushing it in a way which will not prevent us from compiling to accelerators. Having said this, it's actually really difficult. It's not that easy to generate like very performant accelerator code, especially from a language that gives you this much flexibility. Um, and, you know, kind of there are, as we were building it, ultimately, I think we have realized that there are kind of two paths we can take it in. Um, and one of them is, you know, keep sort of iterating on the language, like keep doing kind of more programming languages research and, um, you know, kind of try to expand what we can do with it. And the other one is actually, you know, stop where we are, uh, build a really good backend and, you know, focus our effort there. Um, and for, for some time we tried to do the second thing, but ultimately I think we have decided that, you know, the particular skill set, um, you know, we currently have and the, you know, actual things we want to explore. I don't think we're like done with designing the language. So we have built this accelerator backend as kind of a prototype just to make sure that like, we're not wrong, that it can be targeted to accelerators. But at the same time, you know, we have confirmed that in fact it can, but at the same time, like generating really good accelerator code in all cases is very, very difficult. Um, and so we have decided to basically exclude that as like an overhead on the, you know, uh, on the, you know, implementation of the new language features that we want to try out. So we still sort of carefully design it so that, you know, at some point we can come back to the accelerator thread but it doesn't, you know, drag us down in, uh, you know, implementation complexity, essentially. So as I said, it's a small project. You kind of have to pick your battles, right? So it's kind of intentionally limiting the scope. So Foothark, for example, has like a, a really good, I think, GPU backend. Like they are definitely way better these days at compiling code for GPU, whereas, you know, Dex was mediocre, I think, at compiling to GPU at one point because it was kind of more to like prove a point that we can do it and, you know, prove it to partly to ourselves, partly to others. Um, but at this point, you know, we're not trying to make it like a language that will be, you know, necessarily used by everybody. Um, so we have decided to sort of cut the, sco cut the scope um, down a little bit just to just to be able to like explore um, other things. Is that kind of the same situation uh, as you were talking about the difference between research and industry? If you try and tie it to a backend, that starts to limit your flexibility in doing other things. Is that the same sort of idea? Uh, it might be. It might be partly that, but it might just be simpler than this. I think, as in, it's just like more code to maintain, and you know, yeah, it's just more code to maintain, and you know, as you add new features, you like have to like keep them working through all the backends perhaps because otherwise I'm not sure like if it's that useful to keep the other backend around. So yeah, like it's a it's a it's essentially a hard constraint on language design. The fact that we are you know able to support something like this down the line, but it doesn't have to be an implementation constraint at this point. In fact, we have tried to find some initial users um, for Dex, and if we had you know a group of people who like wanted to um actually you know use it sort of today there was like a clear problem where they would be excited and want to drive it in then perhaps we like also would have invested more in in that um but in fact like in the last few years the python tools have like evolved so much that actually they are really good i think um like the landscape of you know if we were doing this a few years back it might have been actually easier to do this 
but these days it will be very difficult to like uh rip python from people's hands because they actually do like it and i do think they do like it for a good reason right um so uh so to some degree we have kind of accepted that perhaps like you know maybe the time to it's not like we could replace jacks with dex right now and the users would be happy right so in that regard it might just be better to like keep iterating and you know once we actually see like a clear shot for um there are definitely you know language enthusiasts and they will try it and that's like really cool but it will not be like a you know widely adopted like language in the industry right so uh we kind of for now scope it down to research plus some you know potential avenues for like short term impact that we're still exploring um but that's so kind of open to the question it seems to me that you won't be going to uh you're not you're not targeting a wider audience until you might find an application in which case that wider audience finds you which is what sort of strikes me as happening with pytorch yeah to some degree i think that's true i mean you know the motivation i think for building this language to a large degree was a kind of an idealized language for us and i think you know there is a fair amount of people who like resonates um in fact i know that there are people who like implement their prototypes in dex just for the sake of like having you know better clarity in their code and in the type system kind of assisting them in doing the design of their experiments but ultimately then they just like reimplement them in jax to i don't know be able to take advantage of like cutting edge compilers that are like staffed by you know um a large number of people that can deliver essentially you know peak performance on the accelerators available today right you know it, it it's sadly perhaps not the best workflow um but it would take a lot of work for us i think to like match you know all of those established compilers and and backends in like a reasonable amount of time especially that those backends are still being developed right and still being improved and so it's like a moving goalpost we we would have to uh, we would have to catch up to these backends uh they they don't support the kind of loops that dex does right so um so you can't just compile dex to the backend either well actually we did have an experiment of compiling dex through xla so the compiler that is sort of backing jax um and you can kind of do it i mean essentially what you do is you can take dex and perform like extreme loop fission where you take you look at all the loops and you break it up into like perfect loop nests that only have like a single primitive like i don't know a single add or a single multiply or something like that inside and then it looks like you know just a ray code right um so there are code transforms you can do like this but it's kind of funny because you're undoing like by doing this you're kind of erasing a lot of information you had about like for example which of those array ops could have been fused right to like achieve better performance which like the backend will then have to like rediscover perhaps um so it's a bit of funny and also it, it i don't think that like dex is a lot more dynamic than not all dex programs would lower this way i think but there is a large subset of dex that we could lower this way So it is definitely a possibility and in fact I even talked to Charles at some point about using Fadhark as like a sort of language we could lower to. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. Yeah, yeah, I mean it will be interesting I think. Um it's just that, you know, time constraints. Yeah, and there I mean any time you're working between languages there are all these little mismatches that you have to work around and that adds up. I mean Dex and Fadhark are not so far luckily yeah well that's why they'd be little mismatches but yeah they would there definitely would be little mismatches and i was going to mention earlier too when you you may have the small comment about people liking python is anecdotally i was just at a conference for the last 3 days and one of the speakers brought her 9-year-old son who apparently has a programming whiz and 
installed dual boot windows and ubuntu on his own laptop and i was just like what the heck you know <laughs> nine i had didn't even i don't think i had touched a computer i guess different ages but uh, i asked him what his favorite programming language was and he said python without missing a beat and uh <laughs> You know, I have, there's lots of discussions inside NVIDIA about the popularity of Python and meeting people where they're at. And yes, it may not be the easiest language to, you know, accelerate to, you know, NVIDIA is concerned with obviously their GPUs, but, um, it's a lot easier to like, we have a whole, you know, teams of folks that are basically building accelerated versions of Python libraries, yep. uh, because it's easier for us to build that and then give it to them than it is for us to, you know, build something else and say, Hey, we built this new shiny thing, like come check it out. And there are going to be people that are interested in that. And, you know, they're going to get a more of a performance win than accelerating the Python code. But for the majority of users, and there's millions and millions of them, uh, they just want to stay in Python land. And I think that, uh, you know, for a long time, I, I lived in this like ideal utopia of like, you know, we, if we, if we build it, they will come and, you know, it will be better and not a, a ton of folks are perfectly happy where they are in, in Python. They just want things to go faster. They don't want to, they don't want to switch to stuff, which I think is important to acknowledge. So yeah, you, you mentioning that just made me, made me think, yes, this, uh, even though I wish the world we lived in wasn't dominated by Python, it, it is a world we live in. So, and I mean, you know, we're social creatures, right? As in the choice of a programming language does not boil down just to technical factors. It also boils down to how easy it will be for other people to reuse your code, right? A lot of projects are, are built by larger teams, right? And, you know, ultimately you have to make sure everybody's on the same page. And so there is uh I think there's a bunch of factors that actually make Python a fairly good choice. They're not necessarily technical factors always, um, but I have to say I've been very impressed by you know how far people have pushed Python and continue to push Python. The latest development perhaps being something like Triton, right? Which is essentially a Python embedded DSL. Like people keep building those DSLs and in fact, people keep finding them useful to some degree. Um, so. Um, you know, as far as we can, you know, push this, uh, I mean, I think it's kind of beautiful that we can do all this with a language that's kind of hasn't even been designed for that. Right. At the same time, it is kind of frustrating if you're trying to build a, if you're trying to build a new language that perhaps has some technical edge, but ultimately, you know, people will not switch because those community effects and, uh, you know, friction, extra friction they will generate during the transition period is oftentimes just like unlikely to outweigh the technical benefits that we get from using a different language. Yeah. We'll leave a, a link because it's a, uh, if you haven't heard of it, Triton can be ambiguous on the internet, but I assume you're referring to the open AI. Uh... If you Google open AI Triton, you will find the right one, but uh, don't Google NVIDIA Triton, even though it compiles for NVIDIA GPUs. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh naming is hard. Um, but do you mind uh, if, if you don't mind sharing, you said you sort of have a, you know, uh, theory for why Python, you know, it's not all necessarily technical reasons for why Python's done so well. Like, do you mind uh, giving us your thoughts on that if you, if you want to share? I mean, I find Python to just be a really convenient scripting language. Like, out of all the sort of, out of all languages where I was trying to like put together quick scripts to do a thing X, um, Python is actually, I think, one of the more convenient ones. 
and also that where the thing acts like varies significantly across domains. It's not just like a, you know, I want to compute this matrix multiplier. I want to compute that particular mathematical function, right? There are probably better like uh, domain specific languages for that. But if you want to, I don't know, here download some web pages and process them. Here like process some like text data set. Here do a bit of array compute. Here do, you know, some image processing. Then there are a few, you know, here just do some like shell scripting almost. Um, there are a few languages where you can do that in sort of a, a single place where you have like libraries that will help you with all of that. And that are also kind of have some friendly syntax. Like, I don't know, silly things like list comprehensions, right? Already kind of can go a really long way. Um, so I think it's, it's just surprisingly versatile. And then just the insane community effects are probably a, a big factor here. What is a, there was a quote that I heard once that was, Python is not the best language for anything, but it's the second best language for everything. Yeah, exactly. So. Which kind of sums up what you just said there. And it is, I don't know how many times I've been trying to write some bash script with a limited bash that I knew at one point, and I'll be 30 minutes into it. And then I'm like, why am I trying to do this in bash? And then three minutes later, I went to Stack Overflow, basically found the exact thing I needed, changed a couple things and have my script working. Yeah. So Python is amazing for that kind of stuff, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's it might be a similar situation as with PyTorch, right? Like you start out by writing those little throwaway scripts, but many of those throwaway scripts will become research projects. And many of those research projects will graduate, will, you know, keep growing. And at some point they will become production projects. And at that point, you have a lot of code that's in Python. So you might as well, you know, kind of supporting, actually, this is also a big part in, in Jax. Like as we design a lot of APIs, I think Matt, uh, who, Matt Johnson, who's like one of the uh, creators as well, he like uh, really likes to keep things demoable, like keep, you know, be able to have a collab or, or IPython notebook where you can kind of showcase something cool in like a few lines that kind of, you know, is not something extremely specialized, like, oh, I just made an API for this, you know, one exact model and I can just like run through and it classifies images, right? Like not something like that, but kind of at the base level, kind of, I have, you know, transformed this function and like parallelized it over eight devices and also computer gradients and also vectorized it over a bunch of examples and something like that. And it still takes five lines of code. I think this like sort of demo ability, like just being able to write sort of fairly short snippets that already do a lot. Um, is very important. And Python definitely has that. And once you sort of have the seed written down, then you end up like building the whole infrastructure around your program. Um, but sort of being able to sort of uh, plant those seeds is, I think, a, an important process as you like start new projects, perhaps. And Python actually is really good at that. One other small anecdote. It's, it's hard to predict trends, but uh, there's a website called Languish com or it might have a different URL, but it's it tracks basically it ranks every language slash file format on GitHub based on a few different metrics. And Python is, I think, number one by a long shot. But it also had like a massive two percent jump because it sort of keeps track of market share, not necessarily of whatever. So it's a percentage. And a ton of languages went down over the last three months and Python jumped up two percent, which is a pretty big jump. And uh you know, it's hard to tell if that'll just reverse over the next, you know, three months or if you can read into that. But I, in the back of my head, I was thinking, I wonder if the fact that all these LLMs now are sort of being popularized, that uh, it's like LLMs because there's so much, there's this like snowball effect. There's so much Python code out there and there's so many people that know Python 
and uh, it might be the easiest for LLMs to consume and spit out. So now we have just like the fact that like at the point in time where LLMs became popular, Python was like the lingo franca of the world that like fast forward two years from now, like <laughs> Python is going to be number one by like, you know, 20%, not because of any other reason that like it was the number one and easiest language to sort of get started with when like the LLM, you know, I don't want you inflection point happened. Uh, it's a small theory. We'll see. Maybe it completely wrong, but uh yeah. No, I mean, it's it's sensible, right? I mean, in the short term, I could believe that, you know, LLMs can can have a rich get richer effect on programming languages. But ultimately, if you take LLMs to their limit, then does the programming language matter? If you had like LLMs that are really good at generating code, they like, we can just stop the language wars. We will just be programming in, in natural language, right? So uh... <laughs> the new rung in the abstraction ladder is not going to be code. It's going to be computer, please do X. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. no, no, you misunderstood. Please do X prime. And thank you. Okay, we're, <laughs> we're done. Everyone can go home now. And uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're still not exactly there, but, uh, but yeah, maybe, in, you know, 50 years, just like, uh, you know, there was a fun discussion in our team as uh, how funny it is that like naming conventions from Fortran, which had some like, I don't know, character limits or whatever, are still like influencing the code we write today. And, you know, maybe similarly, like we look back and kind of laugh that people were using six character function names. People will similarly be laughing at how we, you know, used to actually program and anything else than just the language we speak, right? It's going to be, what are we going to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think we are over a tiny bit over the hour mark, but, uh, I'll, I'll sort of pause before we, we give the plug if people want to get involved or if they want to download things. Uh, are there any final questions maybe from, from the other panelists, uh, before we, we start to officially wind things down? Um, I, ju I just think it's fascinating to talk to you inside the process of this development. It's, it's as it's happening as it's growing, it's not a perspective that you get from outside very much at all. I think to some extent in the array languages, we get that because we're small communities and people know each other within the community, but to see it happen on a bigger scale and how that works on a bigger scale, I think it's really important. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's really exciting because ultimately, you know, compute is underlying a lot of science these days. Right. And so if you are able to like build those tools, at least you can feel like, you know, you're contributing a little bit to so many like different fields where people, you know, end up using those tools in very cool ways that you had no idea about. So, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I guess, yeah, the final question we should ask is if people, I think number one, if they want to go download this and take it for a spin on their local computer and number two, if they are interested in, like you said, if, you know, there's someone listening out there that has some application that requires some, you know, direction that currently uh maybe dex isn't focused on and they want to get involved in building that out of contributing where where should folks go to to do both of those things uh so also one like very important thing to me is that pretty much all of the work we do is actually on github so if you want to i don't know try out jacks um there's a google slash jacks uh, repository if you want to try out dex confusingly it's google dash research slash dex dash lang so uh as it's a bit smaller project, it also gets a less uh, straightforward name. Um, smaller project, larger larger URL. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's an inverse relationship there. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, there's a, you know, there's a readme that walks you through. We don't have pre-built packages. Dex is kind of scrappy and uh, there's probably a high bar to actually, you know, build it. Uh, you do need to have the, uh, you know, Haskell ecosystem, but as we said, I mean, it's kind of, um, we're not expecting, you know, a lot of people to kind of rush in, but if you're a language enthusiast, want to try it out, um, do go for it. The language is actually undergoing a bit of a syntax redesign right now. So uh, that uh, may be creating some confusion at times. Um, but yeah, it could be interesting. And if you if you have any if you have any interesting ideas for yeah, what uh, what's difficult, I think, in either the languages in Python or um, what would be strictly a good application for something like Dax, um, then yeah, I would be very interested. Um, to hear more about this. I, I should also say for Dex, there is a longer ICFP paper um, from like two years ago, I think, um, at this point, uh, which actually explains like more about the design of the language. So that's also one good place because there is a workshop paper, I think, which is like two pages long or three pages long. And that is like a very short rundown of what it means. And then there's a longer like 20 something pages paper that we have actually written that describes it in more detail. Awesome. Well, luckily, the length of the URLs do not matter in the show notes. So if folks don't want to go type that stuff in, <laughs> they can just go directly to the show notes and we'll make sure to include all of that to the Jax repo, to the Dexlang repo, and to both of the papers, the white paper and the ICFP paper. And I was just, I just went to the GitHub uh, and it looks like, I can't tell if there's two different ways to build it, but they, one of the ways is with Nix, if there are multiple ways, which, uh, is, uh, you know, for the, the Haskell folks out there, we'll all know what Nix is, but, uh, definitely pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> and I will be attempting to, to build this on my own machine and to see how close I can get the, uh, you know, the Dex code looking to sort of whether that's Q or Futhark and, uh, you know, figuring out what the differences are, but this conversation has been super awesome and it's, yeah, like I'll echo what Bob said, uh, super cool to talk to you in the midst of while you're building this and having come from PyTorch and then sort of getting more interested in the programming language side of things. And then it sounds like you're kind of doing your dream job uh, at Google research, which is, which is awesome. And uh, maybe in the future, if, uh, if Dex, you know, continues to, to grow, we'll, we'll be able to have you back on and whether that's to talk about Dex or maybe, you know, the next thing, as you said, researchers famously, you know, whether it's, you know, every couple of years or every couple of months, they, they, they go from working on one project to another project, but, uh, hopefully Dex will continue to grow and, and we'll be able to have you on and chat in the future about what's changed and, uh, you know, how people are using it, hopefully not just in academia, but, uh, maybe in industry at some point in time. Yeah, I would be happy to. There's also one more project actually in the past few months, I have not been working on Dex so much. There's one uh, other project that right now is actually internal, but will become public very soon. Ooh. So I can't can't talk about it yet. But uh, if you want to, yeah, then you can. I don't know. I guess at some point, maybe I will post on Twitter or something. So if, uh, if you're interested, um, we could yeah have a conversation about that. And uh, depending on when you're listening to this, I so I will keep my ear to the ground for when this uh, comes out. <laughs> we will link it in the show notes. So. Probably if you're listening to this on the Saturday or Sunday, the weekend it drops, you know, the link won't be there, but, uh, for whenever this comes out. So it's probably, we'll look for it on Twitter. Are there plans to maybe give a talk or present this at some kind of academic conference at some point or just being released online for the moment? This one is actually probably less academic and sort of more applied. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, we might write a paper about this at some point, uh, but yeah, definitely 
um, you know, also happy to talk about it sort of in less academic terms. And yes, tell your friends, folks, because you're hearing it. You're not actually hearing it here first, but you're hearing that you're going to hear about it <laughs> on Twitter first, which is kind of breaking news. You know, it's not actual news, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, we're getting a we're getting a sneak peek, you know, at what will be released. So, uh, you know, tell your friends <laughs> a Raycast is the podcast to listen to. Uh, and, uh, I guess we'll throw it to Bob for folks that want to reach out to us and, uh, you know, give questions, ask questions, <laughs> give comments if they have them. If you, if you have comments, if you have questions, the way to get in touch with us is contact at arraycast.com. And, uh, as mentioned many times during this show, uh, show notes are available. So if you want to get to the links that we've discussed, go to the show notes and, uh, that's on the website or probably depending on your podcatcher of choice there'll be a, an option of show notes there and you can just click and, and open up those links so there will be easy ways to get to it um, but if you can't find something contact at arraycast.com we'll do what we can to get the information for you and certainly in a future arraycast uh, as uh, adam releases this new preview of coming attractions we will uh, let people know about that as well Awesome. Once again, we'll say thank you so much for taking the time, Adam. And uh, yeah, we're, we'll be keeping our ear to the ground to, to see what you have to, to release on the on the socials, on the Twitters, if it still exists. You know, I'm sure it'll be some platform, you know, depending on how, yes. how, how the, uh, you know, the social media wars play out. But Send uh, out emails. Yeah, yeah. It'll just we'll be going backwards in times just to emails. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. I guess with that, we will say uh, happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.